When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Academic Life. This is the podcast for your academic journey and beyond. I'm the show's creator and your show host, Dr. Christina Gessler. And today we're going to take a look at the book, Look Again, The Power of Noticing What Was Always There. It's written by neuroscience professor Tali Sherratt and Harvard Law professor Cass R. Sunstein. Look again, asks, have you ever noticed what is thrilling on Monday is boring by Friday? Why even exciting relationships, stimulating jobs, and breathtaking works of art lose their sparkle after a while. People stop noticing what is most wonderful in their lives. They also stop noticing what is terrible. Professor Tali Shraw and Harvard Law professor Cass R. Sunstein investigated why. Why do we stop noticing both the great and the not-so-great things around us? Why do we habituate? And how can we dishabituate? This work is based on decades of research in the psychological and biological sciences and illuminates how we can reignite the sparks of joy, innovation, and recognize where improvements urgently need to be made. The key to disruption, to seeing, feeling, and noticing again, is change. By temporarily changing your environment, changing the rules, changing the people you interact with, or even just stepping back and imagining change, you regain sensitivity, allowing you to more clearly identify the bad and more deeply appreciate the good. We're joined by Professor Sunstein. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. I am really glad that you're here and we get to learn about this book and what inspired you to write it. Before we do that, will you please tell us about yourself? Yes, uh, I'm a professor at Harvard and I'm a professor of law. I'm keenly interested in economics and psychology. I've worked in the U.S. government in various capacities. I've worked a great deal on behavioral science, including behavioral economics. And for that reason, I've worked with the United Nations and the World Health Organization and other uh, institutions on human behavior, and it's profoundly to be hoped how to improve health, safety, and more. Listeners are interested in how people found their way to where they are. What drew you to this field? When you were younger, did you know that you were interested in the law and what you might be able to do with it? Well, I started my career, I guess, as a literature major in college, and I was keenly interested in human nature and Shakespeare and Freud a little bit. Um, I didn't think that being an English professor suited my temperament so well, felt a little passive. So I went to law school, which I thought was a place where you could learn about institutions, about rules, about people, about what people do to help people, maybe what 
people do to hurt people. I thought all that was super interesting. And then in law school, I got interested in government regulation and not everyone's interested in that, but it has to do with improving the environment, improving public health and safety, improving civil rights. And these are, I think, keenly interesting and enduringly interesting questions. And it, Law school, when you start to teach in it, as I was lucky enough to be able to do, um, often veers into questions about why human beings act the way they do. And in the law schools in the 1980s, when I began, there was uh, a notion, a foot in the land, which is human beings are rational. And that was a little less innocuous than it seems. It meant that, you know, that people will try to maximize their well-being. And if you give them an economic incentive, they'll adjust accordingly. And people have good memories, and they are good optimizers, and they act rationally, and the legal system has to keep that in mind. I thought that this was not accurate because I had studied literature in college, but my skepticism was uninformed and clueless. I didn't have the tools to uh, contest the notion that human beings are rational, exclamation point. And then I discovered basically on one afternoon, some work in psychology and economics that departed from the rationality assumption that suggested that people were sometimes um, really generous, even they'd sacrifice their self-interest to be generous, sometimes really punitive, that if someone was mean to them, they'd be punitive, even if their own at their own expense, that people could get addicted to things course, we know that, but there's some amazing work on the nature and magnitude of addiction and the circumstances where it happens uh, that sometimes people focus on today and tomorrow and the future is a foreign country. They're not sure they're going to visit. That people really are by nature optimistic. That's a great thing that people tend to think on average that life is going to get good or better. That's how humanity tends to be. But unrealistic optimism can create a lot of trouble as when we think we're not at risk of, let's say, COVID-19 when we actually are, or not at risk of getting cancer or heart disease when we actually are. And this uh, work in economics and psychology about what homo sapiens or species is really like seemed to me thrilling. It was like a sunburst in the sky. And that got me interested in applying the latest work in economics and psychology to problems in, in law and policy. And after that, I felt like I was on a rocket ship that was really fast and basically safe. What inspired you to co-author Look Again? Um, there's an area of, uh, let's say, social science, which is underappreciated not only by like all of us, but also and in particular by people whose business it is to study our species. And the aspect that I'm talking about is that we habituate. So if you are, let's say, in a really beautiful house, and I'm fortunate enough to be speaking from a really beautiful house right now, after a few months in that house, you might like the house, but its amazingness doesn't dawn on you because you've habituated to it. If you get to be, let's say, 
uh, married to or partners with someone who's amazing and fantastic. When you fall in love, it's the greatest thing. It may be that a few years down the road, it's really good. And you like that person a lot. You love the person, but you're not as amazed as you were. You habituate to that person. Or if you get to have a job, which is a good thing to get to have, and it's a really good job that suits your interests and your talents, the day you got it, maybe the week you started it, you thought, my gosh, how did I get so lucky? But way into it, it's, it's your job. It's what you do every day. That's true, not only for fantastic things like friends and houses and jobs and partners. It's also true for horrible things where if we're sound, surrounded, let's say, by unkindness or cruelty, we may think the first time we are exposed to it, how can someone act like that? But after we've been surrounded by it for a certain amount of time, we might think, well, I guess that's what the world is like. Or if we face, let's say, discrimination or crime or something really not good at all, we might lose our sense of surprise because we're habituated to it. And the fact that habituation is built into not just humanity, but uh, life and a fantastic thing because it prevents us from banging our head against the wall and it alerts us to things that are new, which is a really good thing to be alert to. The fact that it's so central to human existence and so underappreciated seemed to me and my incredible co-author to justify uh, the time spent in making a book. How did you two come together to collaborate on it? Uh, Tali and I have been collaborators for a number of years. We started, I guess, after she wrote a book on optimism that I really liked, and I wrote her kind of a fan letter saying, this is a, an amazing book, and thank you for writing it. And because our interests are overlapping, we started to collaborate on issues like um, how do people form judgments about climate change? How do people decide whether to seek out information or refuse to seek out information? Um, do people affiliate with people whose political views are the same as theirs? Do they start to distrust people who have different political views than theirs? And this uh, collaboration produced a series of articles. Some of my favorite, by the way, are about information seeking and information avoidance. Like if people are uh, in a position to learn, let's say, about their medical condition, they might think, I, I guess I'm going to uh, be like an ostrich and run from that information. If people are getting information about, let's say, how they've performed on the job or, or in school, they might think, you know, if I don't have to see what my grade is or my performance is, that's probably a good thing. I'll, I'll stay away from that. And people's seeking information, avoiding information is so fundamental. And some of it's really funny. Some of it's a little bit tragic. Uh, we had just a great time working on that. And then on, on this topic, she was working on it a little bit uh, as a potential book. And I, I had been full-time in the U.S. government. When I left, I thought, what am I going to work on now, now that I get to write? And we started talking about this, and it really fit with both of our interests because it bears on policy, it bears on government stuff, it bears on ordinary life, as well as the human brain. And she's a neuroscientist. I'm curious about how long a book like this takes. We are taping in December of 2023. 
When did you start this project? We started about early 2022, possibly late 2021. That's when we started it. Maybe uh, we got going in earnest in January, February 2022. So it took us uh, uh, about 11 months, I think, of, of, of hard work to produce a book. It may be that uh, my memory is a little more optimistic and that the, the timeline was a bit longer than that, but it was basically 11 months or so of concentrated work. Sounds a little bit fast for a book. Was it one of those that was just ready to be written? You know, during it, it was a joy. She's really fun to work with and a fantastic writer. Um, it, it didn't feel like a speedboat in the sense that we had a lot of chapters that we either abandoned or rewrote radically in the course of doing the book, that the basic idea of the book shifted really dramatically in the course of the writing. Um, neither of us took much in the way of vacation over the course of that approximate year. And both of us have been thinking about these topics for you know, at least 10 years. I think in my case, probably I've been thinking about this for about a quarter of a century. So we can, could, could draw on research we'd done. Uh, she'd done some really fundamental work uh, eight years ago on these topics. And, and that uh, fed into the writing. So the 11 months in a way is misleading. I think probably it's fair to say that uh, we've been working on these ideas for a long, 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 long time. You said that during the writing process, the, the nature of the book shifted. What did you th think it would be and where did it end up? We thought early on that the book would be fundamentally about adapting to demons. That was at one point uh, the title of the book, Adapting to Demons. And the basic idea was that there are terrible things around, regrettably. Uh, we hope in everyone's life they're outweighed a lot by the wonderful things. But we wanted to explore how people adapt to what's really awful and stop noticing it. It could be unclean air. It could be uh, injustice in the workplace. It could be something in the medical system that's not working well. But as the book um, got written, we got at least as excited about how people adapt or habituate uh, to great things and stop noticing them. And here I'll say a hero of the book uh, is Julia Roberts, the actress. Uh, hi, Ms. Roberts, if you're listening, thank you for being a hero of the book. And the way that she became a hero of the book was that she was interviewed in the New York Times about her own life. And she was asked, what do you like best? What's a perfect day for you? And she said, well, a perfect day for me is I get up, I attend to my children, I get them ready for school. I do that. I take them to school. Then I start to get ready for lunch with my husband. I have lunch for him. Then after that, it's time to pick the kids up after their sporting practice. Then she stopped herself and she said, it's boring. 
And then she added immediately, but what you need to know is because of my job, I go away. I go away for a while, maybe a long while, to do a movie or a TV show or something. And when they when I come back, all this is surrounded by pixie dust. It resparkles. And the word resparkling at one point was our title of the book. We maybe thought we'd call it resparkling, and it didn't become the title. Look again captures not noticing what's great that you're not paying attention to. And I'm right now, by the way, looking at my uh, Labrador retriever, uh, who is great and whom I, whose greatness I don't attend to as much as I should. So I'm looking again at her. The, the word look again also captures looking again at something that's not good. So we use that instead of resparkling, which focuses on what has lost its sparkle, but can get it again, if only you attend to it. And that theme became to us uh, uh, thrilling, the idea that there are things that can be made to re-sparkle, like a chair even, a really comfortable chair in your house, or a TV set that's big and that works, that can re-sparkle. And that became something we were pretty excited about. You did thank your dog in the acknowledgments. My, my dogs, I've been paying attention in this conversation to the girl whose name is Snow, uh, but the boy at whom I'm looking now is named Finley. And Finley actually has an outsized role in the book in the sense that uh, there's a dog named Finley who uh, makes an important appearance in the book. It's not Finley himself, but it is his name. And that was, I guess, what we call an homage to a loved one. In the introduction, you bring us into the idea that we habituate. And you say we habituate to everything all the time. We seem to be designed to do that. Um, As you mentioned, we can do that for ill, where we adapt to things we shouldn't, like demons, um, and to not notice wonderful things like how devoted our dog is or how great it is to have time with our loved ones. Um, But we can also dishabituate. Do you want to take a bit of time for listeners and explain really what this concept is of habituating and how we're designed to habituate to everything all the time? Okay, good. Thank you. Think for a moment, if you would, all of us, uh, about not our parents, not our grandparents, not our great-grandparents, not our great-great-grandparents, but our great-great-great-great-great-great-great, way back there, our distant ancestors. They were less... um, Uh, sophisticated than we are, and they didn't have legs. They were highly responsive to changes in the sense that they would start swimming a lot if things got different. But if things were really stable, they kind of stayed where they were and barely noticed. These aren't uh, mammals. These aren't anything recognizable as your ancestors, but they are your ancestors, and they're one-celled organisms who habituated to their surroundings. And when things got different, they started moving. Now, habituation means diminished sensitivity to stimuli. So if you go into a room and there's a terrible smell, you will instantly think, 
ugh, terrible smell. But if you stay there for 45 minutes, if you're like most people, eventually you'll barely notice the smell. Right now, in my experience, maybe yours too, maybe everyone who's listening, there's a noise in the background uh, of some kind. It might be a humming noise from something. It might be a noise that involves uh, heat or air conditioner or just something in the house. And we don't notice it. I think you're probably now noticing it. And the reason is that I mentioned it. Or there's some light somewhere that's on that is... uh, not noticed by you. Um, it's not bothersome. It's not wonderful. It's just a light that maybe it doesn't need to be on, but it's on. Or there's something, if you look outside for a second, you'll see that you didn't notice that is just there. You're habituated to all those things. That can be true of a workplace where maybe there's some inefficiency or silliness that when you started, you thought, what, this is how we do things? But after two months, you think, this is how we do things, and you barely notice. So that's habituation. In uh, uh, the, This is a book for all ages, but the book does have some discussion of romance. Uh, my 14-year-old boy can read it, but there is a discussion of romance in the book where people who are, you know, madly in love with each other and uh, fantastic might, after a few years, um, take each other for granted. And the the sparks uh, uh, dimmed a bit, and uh, the reason is that uh, fire requires air. And that's from Esther Perel, a therapist who works on couples. The notion that fire requires air is basically a great signal of how habituation occurs and how dishabituation occurs. If things are stable and there isn't really the equivalent of air, then we don't really notice them. We're like our uh, distant ancestors. Now, dishabituation occurs when you do something different, like you uh, take two days in a different place. And that place is going to be, if it's, you know, nice in any way, it's going to get your energy flowing, your nerve endings are going to be open, you're going to notice everything there. So it's like when you go to a city in another country, it's like everything in your uh, body is uh, a little raw in a good way. You're just seeing everything. So Paris, my gosh, look at that street. And it, it's Paris, so it's probably an amazing street, but it might not be that much more amazing than the streets near you live. It's just you're noticing everything. And then if you spend a little time, let's say, you know, in some nice place away or in some amazing place like Paris, and then you come back and you see your house, your own house, it may be a rental, it may be anything, you'll think, unless it's really terrible, your place, and I much hope it isn't, you'll think, wow, this is where I live. And what is comfortable becomes at least a little bit thrilling because you spend a time time away. And in jobs, some companies have people rotate a little bit. So they'll go from their standard job, maybe to spend two weeks or even two months doing something else. And one reason for that is that people will look again when they come back. 
They'll look with fresh eyes. I've worked on multiple occasions in the U.S. government, and I learned there's something called a detail. Who knows what that is? A detail sounds like a little specific thing, but a detail in the government, and not only in the government, means you leave, let's say, the Environmental Protection Agency for a time, and you're detailed to the White House. Or you leave the Environmental Protection Agency, and you're detailed to the Department of Transportation. The new time in the new place is amazing because you're dishabituated. You're not habituated to it yet, and you see everything as if it's full of colors. There's no gray anymore. And then you go back to your home place. You know, it could be a company. It could be a city. And what was gray is now blue and red and green and yellow again. And that's dishabituation. Yeah. Earlier examples about uh, Julia Roberts and about Esther Perel, our, our readers can find them in chapters uh, one and two about happiness and variety. Um, in in chapter two about variety, you talk about um, why some people crave change, and you introduce us to a thinker named Stephen Levitt. Can you talk to us about the impulse to desire change, because I'm a person who likes a little bit of routine. (laughs) Yeah, you and me both. So let's talk about two kinds of people, exploiters and explorers, and we love them both. Exploiters are people who exploit, meaning use, uh, what they have. So if they have uh, a restaurant that they quite like, they want to keep going to that restaurant they like. If they have some time off, they might think a staycation sounds perfect. If they have a vacation place, they go either by themselves or with their family. Uh, They want to go back to that really nice place. An explorer type is someone who likes novelty. So an explorer might think, I want to try the new restaurant in town. The idea of a staycation makes me a little bored. The idea of going on a vacation to a place that I've never been before, that's really thrilling. There are people, and I think everyone can recognize themselves as either explorers or exploiters. Uh, Warren Buffett, as a, a reader, is a exploiter. Bill Gates, as a reader, is an explorer. Gates likes lots and lots of different things. Buffett likes books about investing. That's what they tend to recommend. And it it may be that the explorer in some domains needs some areas of stability and um, no change, and that the explorer likes uh, the the exploiter needs at least some exploration or otherwise they'll start to get bored. It tends to be reasonable to think that explorers habituate really quickly and exploiters like you and me, I guess, less so because the two of us are more people of routine. And often opposites attract. My wife is an explorer. I'm an exploiter. I know I like her and being with her partly because she's an explorer. And I hope that uh, the fact that I am a kind of staycation kind of guy, in a way, that's a positive for her. Now, what uh, Steve Levitt discovered in an intriguing experiment is that people tend to be a little stabler in their lives than is good for them. 
So when Sheryl Crow sang, A Change Will Do You Good, she was speaking to the human condition. And basically, those are really wide, wise words. If you're thinking of leaving a job, uh, ending a relationship, or moving to another city, or maybe dyeing your hair, or maybe getting a new outfit, or doing something a little bit dramatic, uh, the average person who's thinking hard about all of those things uh, should do those things. The average person Levitt finds is better off months later if they end up doing the thing that they are seriously considering doing in the direction of change. Now, that's not to say that the average person should leave their spouse or quit their job. Uh, many people, I hope most people, like their jobs well enough that they don't seriously think of changing them, and they like their spouse well enough not to think of ditching them. But if you're at a point where this is really, you know, an equipoise, you're not sure what to do, let's do the, the easier cases like dye your hair or go on vacation rather than something more dramatic, uh, a change will do you good. The data suggests that the explorer knows something that we exploiters undervalue, which is the dishabituating glory of change. One thing the book uh, mentions is that there's a pace of habituation. We don't all habituate at the same rate. Um, And that for some people, the benefit of habituation is comfort um, over excitement. Um, you also point out that learning is change. So that um, helped me feel better about um, apparently being so somewhat boring uh, in liking routines. Um, because when you, when you read a book, if, you, if your idea of an interesting afternoon is to sit and read a book, you're going on an adventure vicariously and you're if it's nonfiction, you're learning something. And so through that, you are actually seeking change, but for you with maybe less external stimulus added in. These are such great questions. I really thank you. So uh, uh, let's focus in on those who like staycations and those who like going to their familiar restaurants and those who like reading books. Uh, um, None of those people may be boring. So they might not be boring at all. Uh, all of us know, I think, people who really like routine, who are incredibly interesting. They're really fun to talk to. They're introspective. They have a trillion thoughts in their minds. They're curious about others. And they're uh, you know, the best friends you can imagine. What they might be is not boring, but bored. So the people who go to the same restaurants, who take the same vacations, they may be super interesting, but they might be a little more bored in their lives than they would find ideal. So let's get a little scientific about this, shall we? Not in the sense of uh, you know, uh, nuclear physics, but in the sense of social science. People tend to value three things. They value happiness. They want their days to have smiles rather than frowns. If a day is painful, that's a negative. They also tend to value, and this is a very separate meaning. So if you have a day where you're watching a great show and it's a really happy day, but it seems kind of purposeless, it's just uh, one episode of a great show after another, 
might feel a little empty. And so people will sacrifice happiness for the sake of meaning. There's a trade-off there because you might have a meaningful day in which you're doing a ton of good works and helping vulnerable people, but you're frowning a lot and you're suffering and you feel, you know, this is a really purposeful day. It's what you're on the earth for, but you're not happy. So there's meaning and there's uh, happiness and people tend to habituate to both meaning if there's something that makes you happy, if you do it over and over again, it'll start to get a little boring for you. And if you do something that gives you a sense of meaning and you do it all the time, you might habituate to that and it might not seem so meaningful. So there's a third thing, which is psychological richness. Um, And this is a relatively new empirical finding. It's not a new idea, but it's a new empirical finding. The idea is that people will sacrifice meaning and happiness for the sake of variety. So if they have a day that is just joyful, lots of smiles, but it's the same, they might after 30 of those days say, hey, let's try something new, even if there are fewer smiles. And if something is very meaningful and they do it, let's say for two months straight, they might say, uh, get me out of here at least for a day or a week. Let me try something different, even if it's less meaningful and even if it's less happy. So there's happiness, there's meaning, and there's psychological variety. And psychological variety helps people to have a sense of um, of uh, dishabituation. It, it, it shocks them out of what they were doing before. So that's good. Now, to your point about reading, of course, you're exactly right. You can have a, a reading day in which you are being dishabituated and jolted. Um, Shakespeare and Stephen King, <coughs> forgive the cough, and Charles Dickens, and Joyce Carol Oates, all are profound dishabituators. You spend, and take your pick, any any writer you like, might be a nonfiction writer who's transporting you to Rome or Nazi Germany or Paris in the 20s. You're traveling, you're doing mental time travel. And that gives you a sense of psychological richness. It might be a day without an airplane, but there's a psychological airplane. And that's fantastic. It might make you re-sparkle when you see your own world. You might think, I just visited Paris in the 20s. Look at my world. I have a laptop. My gosh. In chapter five, you talked to us about creativity. You just named several authors who um, are known for their creativity. Um, On the one hand, uh, failure to habituate can be a symptom of an adjustment disorder. But on the other hand, people who habituate more slowly can often be people who are creative thinkers, who want to sit with some of the stimulus and the information it provides so they can think about it and deconstruct it and see it in a new way. Can you talk to us a little bit about how it fuels creativity to be a slower habituator? Yes. So think of artists who often see things in a way that suggests they're really not used to the scene that they're painting. So if you look at da Vinci or Michelangelo, they are doing something that shows their own vision of something isn't routinized at all. And you look at that thing, you know, take your pick, 
and then you see it as uh, a kind of uh, startling vision. And then you may go back and see a person whom you had taken for granted and see them a little bit in the same way the artist saw a, an object of a, of a painting. Now take a musician. Uh, I'll give you one of my favorites, Bob Dylan, who is uh, uh, a poet of dishabituation, where both the lyrics and the music, they are jolting us out of routine. And a lot of his songs are actually about dishabituation. Uh, Desolation Row is a song about the amazingness of the people on Desolation Row and how each of them really is um, uh, a, a vision of strangeness. And then the song ends with something, basically a complaint about routinization. That's what Dylan does in Desolation Row. And in, in business, many of the creative thinkers think of Steve Jobs. He saw a way of doing a computer that was just uh, completely apart from the computer producing world that he, as a young person, entered into. And then he produced, you know, Apple, which is basically a new way of looking at laptops and computers. And if you think of the great scientific advances that are practical, like uh, uh, electric cars or like um, uh, electric light bulbs and the like, they're often people look at something from the side and see something as if they were in a way coming from another planet and able to either transform an existing thing or produce a new thing where the new thing is uh, built on the old, but it's like it turns it sideways and upside down. So our uh, case in point of creativity and dishabituation is uh, Dick Fosbury, the uh, old uh, Olympic high jumper who invented something called the Fosbury flop, which is a new way of doing a high jump. And at the time, it was thought to be completely ridiculous because no one jumped that way. But Fosbury, who was a really creative type and who wasn't stuck in the standard ways of doing this thing called high jumping, he invented a new way and he won the Olympic gold, even though he wasn't the greatest athlete in the world. And now everyone does the Fosbury flop such that what was standard before Fosbury seems to high jumpers to be really weird. They can't imagine anyone ever did that, barely believe that. Uh, but all lives, really, and all um uh, sectors of human life, we require Dick Fosbury's, and each of us can invent in a small way or large a Fosbury flop. Families do that. The book is divided into four parts. Uh, the first part is called well-being. The second part is thinking and believing. The third part is health and safety. And the fourth part is society. When we started talking, you said you had an original vision of the book where you were questioning how people can adapt to demons. 
that threads through the book in a few places still. Um, one is in the section on social media and how people can habituate to it, even as they have loss of mood. And then in section four, part four in society, we look at the demon part of habituation again with discrimination and tyranny. Do you want to uh, tackle a bit of that for the listeners, please? Yeah, I guess I'll tell a story. Um, I was in South Africa uh, a number of years ago uh, when apartheid was falling. And I was there with some white judges who were helping to produce a post-apartheid South Africa. And I was assured before I went that they were committed to eliminating apartheid, and that assurance turned out to be true. The chief judge was um, someone I really liked. He was smart. We, we hit it off a little bit, a little like father and son, it felt like we had a camaraderie. And then the last night, there was a dinner, and he might have been a little drunk. I was sitting next to him, and he repeated my name like six times in a row, Sunstein, 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 Sunstein. And he said it in a more musical and kind of uh, mildly hostile way. And I thought this was extremely peculiar, <laughs> that my friend was keenly interested in my last name. And I, I just I thought, why, why is he doing this? What's on his mind? And then he paused, kind of uncomfortably long pause, and he said, on our court, we have a Jew. We call him the gentle Jew. Okay. That was not, in my view, charming dinner conversation. And I looked around the table and no one reacted. No one thought that was, you know, a little bit awkward or off-putting. People kind of just smiled. And, you know, that was good dinner conversation. And... Uh, in South Africa at that time, I guess, to call out someone's religion in that less than entirely friendly way was something to which people habituated, I guess, in that group. If that happened, at least in many places in the United States today, or I bet South Africa today, it would be, it would be kind of an incident. People would think, what, is this is this guy have a problem? And, you know, with respect to gender and race, this is very familiar that someone will say something about a woman's appearance or maybe something demeaning about a woman or something that will be racially inflected that a person of color won't love very much and will think, why is this conversation happening? And people habituate to this. And so often inequality of various kinds uh, self-perpetuates because of habituation. And it takes someone, we call them dishabituation entrepreneurs, uh, a little bit of a, a, a mischievous phrase on our part, uh, who are trying to shake things up. And Martin Luther King Jr. was a dishabituation entrepreneur in our sense. And he was very um, uh, self-conscious about this, that he wanted people to see racial segregation, among other things, as, as not just ordinary life, but as a constructed thing that was bad and harmful. So a lot of his uh, success and power came in insisting that people 
especially, but not only white people looking at that, you know, this is, this is how it is. Look again, don't take it as like a background hum that you can ignore. And that's, uh, you know, part of social movements of multiple kinds. Uh, ours is not a political book. This happens on all sides of the political spectrum, that there's good dishabituation from dishabituation entrepreneurs. And often uh, things get better because someone somewhere, uh, either by nature or by their own environment, uh see things, sees things afresh and gets everyone else to do that too. The title of the book is Look Again, The Power of Noticing What Was Already There. And there's a section in the book that talks about the negative aspect of rumination. How do we look again and look again to keep noticing what was always there and avoid the pitfall of being a ruminator. Okay, great. So, um, should we talk about sports for a moment? I, I play a sport called squash and I played it in college and I really like it and I don't like to lose at it. And when I lose, I ruminate. Not, I'm pleased to say, you know, endlessly, but I will think about the loss and how terrible it was in a way that's completely ridiculous and not consistent with well-being. But this is not a therapy session for yours truly about sports psychology. This is about human nature that all of us sometimes ruminate. It may be that there's something we said at a party that we thought was off and then we think about it at night or something we said at the workplace or something we did. We think about it, think about it, think about it, think about it. It turns out that people who ruminate a lot are having trouble habituating. And that's, as a lot of our discussion has suggested, that's in many ways a good thing, that they don't habituate to their own, let's say, imperfections. And mental health is associated with habituation to one's own imperfections. So a lot of mental health problems are associated with an inability to habituate. So that's kind of an other side of the coin from what we've been mostly focusing on. If you had someone who couldn't habituate, they would be so stunned by what they see every second that to have a stable hour would be really difficult. Uh, We need to habituate. But it's possible to get used to, let's say, one's own sports losses or one's imperfections at work or, you know, in daily life and not to ruminate and also to work hard to look again, especially at things that are great that we've gotten used to. You wouldn't ruminate over the amazingness of your two Labrador retrievers. I'm looking at both of them now. And thanks to you, I'm. Uh, newly stunned at how fantastic they are. I don't take them for granted, but this topic is about is dishabituation and hello, Snow, hello, Finley, you are amazing. Um, you can train yourself to dishabituate to what's wonderful and you can take breaks from things such that you are struck anew by how they resparkle. And you can also do that with things that aren't so good. You can train yourself to think with respect to, let's say, changeable um, 
uh, silliness or inefficiency or, or worse. Uh, it doesn't have to be like that. Uh, let's do it this other way. And even if that's something that people haven't heard before, they might, once you've said it, think, oh, yeah. And that needn't mean that you're ruminating. It means that you're just trying to be creative. We're starting to run out of time. I'd like to ask you, what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I'd love it if all of us uh, had the repertoire of resparkling and habituation in our heads such that we could uh, get things that are good to be, as Julia Roberts said, uh, touched by pixie dust where they weren't a week ago. And that might make days and whatever fantastic where they might otherwise be routine. And if we have the words resparkling and habituation in our heads, we might also be able to be uh, innovative with respect to things that are a little bit broken or maybe more than that broken and, um, and get them fixed. Thank you so much for being here today, Professor Sunstein, and sharing with us about your book, Look Again, The Power of Noticing What Was Always There. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life. Please join us again.